All right, everybody, it is uh, Wednesday night. We're thankful that you're here. And obviously, we weren't here last week because last week was winter. Hope you're enjoying spring this week. We'll see what happens next week. It may be summer or maybe winter again. We don't know. But we couldn't be here last week, and I was certainly sad about that. And I'm sure um, you were as well. Hopefully, you got through the uh, tundra okay. Uh, I, we did have class two weeks ago, right? I really don't remember. It feels like a lifetime ago, and it feels like that for the teacher of the class. I can only imagine how much you guys have lost. We didn't have class two weeks ago? We had, we had an ice storm two weeks ago, my wife tells me. I don't remember anything. So it's been three weeks. That's an eternity for you regular church-going people. Um, it's been two weeks, she said. Oh, that's right. Okay, it's been, it doesn't matter. Lauren, stop talking. It doesn't matter. It's been a long time since we had class. Two weeks or whatever it is, it feels like a lot longer than that. If it feels like that for me, I can only imagine how much longer it feels for you. So we're actually going to start a few verses back um, from where we left off last time. I think we were at like Revelation 17, verse 11 or so, but we're going to back up to verse 9 and then ease back into where we left off. All right? So open your Bibles to Revelation 17. And let's start in verse 9 here in just a second. Well, I was just checking to see, but hopefully it works. All right. Um, so the overall picture, what we're looking at right now is John is being told, and this is also kind of a summary of what the whole book's about anyway, but in particular, this part of Revelation is about how the Roman Empire, which has been the thorn in the side of God's people, the um, the persecutor of God's people, the murderer of God's people, how they are finally now going to be taken out, that all of the suffering and the hardship and the crying and the praying to God for answers and when are you going to give us vengeance that you promised? We turned it over to you, but when are you going to deliver? Now it's all going to be delivered. God's going to keep his promises. And what you're reading here is not the, not the keeping of the promise, but a visualization of what it's going to look like because he has promises that he will. Um, Revelation is not written in real time. It's not John set, writing down, and then I saw Rome be destroyed, as he's watching Rome be destroyed. But he does write, essentially, and I saw Rome be destroyed. It just hasn't happened yet. It's a prophecy. It's, it's, a, it's a visual that he's seeing, a vision that is going to come to pass. And it will come to pass, if for no other reason than just because God said that it would. So that's what we're looking at here in chapter 17, and it's, it's been presented to us in a few different ways, these, these visuals, these metaphors. Right now in this chapter, it is the image of this grotesque, large monstrosity of a creature with uh, seven heads, and riding on it like a, a rider would ride on a horse is this uh, harlot woman, and the harlot woman represents the Roman Empire itself, and the beast represents the devil that is using the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire is taking advantage of the powers of the devil to be the dominant force that it is and the evil uh, empire that it is. And what you do as you go through this text is God is systematically showing how he is superior to not just Rome, but to the big bad that's in charge of Rome and how he will take out Rome, but that doesn't defeat evil. Rome is just a sword. Rome is just a weapon that the devil has currently picked up to use. He will defeat the devil in the end, but that's a few chapters uh, away from now. So we're in the midst of this right now as he is still in the process of describing this beast and describing it in several different ways. And so let's that's, that's your backup, uh, that's your preface. Let's now look at verse number 9 of chapter 17. 
And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, that is to say, the seven heads of the beast that John's previously described in this chapter. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Of course, the woman has been sitting on this beast, and it's, it's kind of this metaphor within a metaphor. But it's the key phrase here is that phrase, seven mountains. Rome is the empire built on seven hills. That's kind of its, its very poetic description of it. Arkansas is the natural state. Rome is the empire on seven hills. Or just the, the, uh, the republic of seven hills that became the empire on seven hills. Um, Aventine, Callian, Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Cornell, and Viminal. Those are the seven hills of Rome. And so that, that is a term, that is an idea that is very familiar to the people reading at this time. When they see that reference, seven mountains, they know immediately we're talking about Rome. And so it's just, it's just hitting right at home so we can understand. I am talking to you, God says, about Rome. It's going to be presented in all these remarkable ways, all these flowery descriptions. It's not going to make perfect sense. You may not fully understand all the particulars, but I'm giving you the big picture right now so that we can all at least understand this. I'm talking about Rome. And so when that beast goes down, even if you don't know what all the seven heads represent, you know what the beast represents, you know what the woman riding on the beast represents, so you can get the big picture in, in particular. Verse 10, and there are seven kings, five are fallen and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he the one that's not yet come, when he comes, he must continue for a short space or just for a little while. This is, I said this Last time we had class, this is where we left off last time. Uh, this section here is one of those texts that is the most debated and varied in terms of interpretation and ideas and opinions, and I'm okay with that. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to give you what I think it means. I did a couple weeks ago, but that was a lifetime ago. So I'll give you what I think it means, even if I'm completely wrong. It's happened. Even if I'm totally off base and someone else has the perfect exact right idea and it's not mine, I don't care. I mean, I care in so much as I like being right, but I don't care because I, at least I know the big picture. At least I've already been told, oh, this is Rome. I mean, I understand all the ways in which it's Rome in particular, but I know it's Rome. That's the seven mountains. So we can quibble over the disputes, the, the disagreements, the minor things, but I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. Nevertheless, you have... Five kings are fallen. One king is present. One king is currently. And one has not yet come. Well, that adds up to seven. And that's about the only way you can make things work in that term. is just by adding up the metaphor. Once you try to make application, you're into all kinds of problems. Because we've already established that these seven kings, or that the seven mountains, the seven heads, all that represents Rome. When you think of seven kings of Rome, well, naturally, your mind is going to go to who are the leaders, who are the, the emperors, who are the people in charge of the Roman Empire. The problem is, you get more than seven. And there's no line where you can say, okay, here's an obvious part to start the counting. Because if you start at number one, you go to the current one of John's day, when he wrote this, you have 11. And there's not a spot in particular where you can say, yeah, but if you start here, oh, it makes perfect sense because of this and that, and there you get your seven. There is no this and that. There is no makes perfect sense of it. It just doesn't work that way. For reference, your... Eleven are Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, Caligula, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, and then after Domitian, Domitian is the guy in power right now when uh, John is writing. After him is Nerva and a bunch of guys whose names I couldn't remember, but it's all Latin to me anyway. So you have these guys here. These are the, the, the powers that have been or are or will be. Okay, This is your Roman Empire list in a nutshell. Where do you get seven from 11? And incidentally, eight 
of 7 of 11. We haven't gotten to the 8th yet. We'll get him in a second. That's the problem here. And I've read a lot of commentaries when I've sat in a lot of classes and I've read a lot of books of people trying to decipher and trying to break it down. And it all boils down to people looking at it from the wrong perspective, from my angle. Is they're, all, they're, all, they're all trying to find a way to take this list and condense it in a way that everybody's represented in terms of who was in power and when they left power and how they got back in power as, as if God is giving John a history lesson that he already knows which means God is wasting his breath, and he doesn't tend to do that. So what people try to do is they say, well, yeah, you have 11 here. Um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah, forget Nerva, because he's not in power yet. You have 11 names here, but people will say, well, if you combine Augustus and Tiberius, and if you combine Claudius and Caligula, but why are you combining those names? Who told you to do that? John didn't tell you to do that. The Holy Spirit that inspired him didn't tell you to do that. Why are you combining them? And they'll say, well, don't count Domitian. Why am I not counting Domitian? If anybody is anything, he's the one that is. So why are you doing that? So find a way to make this fit, make this problem work within the framework of this name. And here's the way I figure it, okay? If you remember, it was about a month ago, we talked about Nero, the psychopath that he was, how he was deposed, he was overthrown in a coup by Galba. So when Galba came to power, he did so by running Nero out of town, either killing him or running him off into the east. Either way, Nero was out of the picture. So Nero leaves town. Before that happened, there was an unbroken lineage of emperors of the Roman Empire, starting with Augustus Caesar, going all the way down to Nero. There was this unbroken chain of leadership. But when you get to here, there's a coup. And the chain breaks and a new dynasty starts. A new lineage of emperors begins. And it begins with Galba and goes to Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian. And these guys are all stabbing each other in the back and taking power, as always happens after a coup. Because there's no, there's no semblance of, you know, this is how it's been for years and years and years. It's just... Well, you kill the last guy so I can kill you. And that's what happens here. This, this mess of murder until you get to Titus and Domitian and it stabilizes. But then Domitian's going to die and Nerva's going to take over. That hasn't happened yet. This guy, this guy is the one who is in power. As the text says, there is one that is. There is one who is not yet to come. That's this guy. This is the one that is in power. It doesn't matter that it's Domitian in particular because it is the power structure of this lineage of emperors. It is this power structure that's in power. If there has been a kind of a sub-lesson learned in the book of Revelation, it's that it doesn't really matter who is the actual guy wielding the hammer. It still hurts when you get hit with it. It doesn't matter that Titus sacked Jerusalem when he was General Titus. It doesn't matter that his daddy Vespasian ordered it. This guy is evil. He was replaced. Oh, look, another evil guy. Oh, look, Titus is gone. Domitian, another evil guy. It doesn't really matter who is in power. It doesn't matter. Prepare yourself. I'm not Vincent Van Gogh. It doesn't matter which head you chop off on this pincushion-looking creature. You're looking at it, right? Here's the tail in the background. Here's two front feet and two back feet. And then here's this head, all right? So it doesn't matter if you chop up this head. This is even a point that's made earlier in the book, which is you kill this beast and you think it's dead and it comes back to life. Well, it's because it's got all these heads. You cut off this head, there's six more to go. Cut off that head, another head comes. And even seems like heads are growing behind the heads. There's more heads coming. You can't kill them all because as you kill one emperor, another one rises. You kill one emperor, another one rises. You cannot put them down because you're not dealing with the person. You're dealing with a whole dynasty of people who are being used by the devil. 
This is the power structure that is. And it began after this one, the one that was. Or the one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, four, five. This is what was. In the text, what verse are we on? Ten. In the text it says there are five that were, five that was. There's one that is and one that's to come. Nova and everything that will come after him until the empire completely collapses in on itself is the one that's to come. This power structure, incidentally, this is another coup, and he took over, started over. This is, is, this is to come. So why is this not the one that was? Is everybody following me? I talk fast and I'm a little strange. Why is this not the one? If this is the one that is, and this is the one that is to come, why is this not the one that was? It's because once a new dynasty starts, you don't give this dynasty the, the distinction of being one block of power. It's just a bunch of guys before the real guy in power came to power. And so you just break them up. You had the, the, the era of Augustus and Tiberius and Claudius and Caligula and Nero, and they're all separate. They're all disparate eras. But this is the era of Domitian. It goes all the way back to Galba. Before that, it's B.G., before Galba, doesn't matter. And when Titus was in power, it's the era of Titus. Right? He didn't call it the era of Vespasian and Titus. No, it's I'm in power. It's the era of Titus that goes back to Galba who started the era. Right? So this is the one, and these are just the five that were. Forget about them. That's before now. So I think that is what God is telling us here in the text. He says you've got this monstrous, ugly, disgusting beast, and it's represented by this... Um, Throughout history, power block. This, this block of previous ones, this block of one that is, and there's still even more to come after that. And you have this creature that is controlling these heads. You have these individual power structures, but there's one beast in total. Okay? Keep that in mind as you keep going. Look at verse number 11. If I can get there. And the beast that was and is not, stop right there because we didn't read that verse th this evening, that was a couple weeks ago. That was the way that God described the whole creature. I saw this harlot riding on a beast, a beast that was and is not, which is kind of clunky verbiage. It simply just means here's a beast that has existed, but it's not going to exist for much longer. It, it has an expiration date. It, it, is, it is going out of style. The way that it's written, it's in present perfect, is not, but it, it just means... It's, it's dying. It's a thing that is, it has been, but it's not going to be for much longer. And that's a good contrast to the way that God is described in this book. Almost every time you read about God in his eternal state, it's always him that is and was and is to come. There's no beginning, there's no ending, there's just the God who is. But here's the devil who has been, but won't always be. Big difference. So that's the way he describes this beast. He described him as he that was and is not. Okay? Verse 11 again. That beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Your Bible say that? You have a beast with seven heads. These seven heads represent the totality of the dynasty of the Roman Empire that has been persecuting you, church, John writes. But there is an eighth head. It is the eighth Head. He's been talking about heads of the beast. Here's the eighth beast, and it is the eighth head. Now, wait a second. Hold on. It's hard to get my mind wrapped around this. I can't really visualize it. I certainly can't draw it. How is a body its own head? Because that's what it says. It says, and the beast, even he is the eighth head 
of the beast and is of the seven heads and goes into perdition. That's, that's the destination. That's why it's not going to be forevermore because it is doomed to destruction, the word perdition means. Here's the idea. You have these seven representing the Caesars of the past and the present and the future. And these seven persecute. And as this one is persecuting, let's say this one's Caligula, that's Caligula's persecuting me, all my focus is on Caligula and on Caligula's laws and on Caligula's, you know, uh, random acts of terror against the church, or I'm focusing on Nero and his insanity, or I'm focusing on Domitian and his persecution. I'm focusing on that one. And what John is saying is everyone needs, needs to back up for a second and look and see this one that you're focusing on, this one that you've been zoomed in on, is actually one of many. And this one has been taken out, and this one's been taken out, and now you're on this one, so it's probably going to be taken out. But look, the whole of it belongs to this eighth. There is this eighth leader, this eighth head, the one that rules over all of them. Who is the eighth emperor of the Roman Empire? Who is the, the emperor of the emperors? Who is the king of darkness of king of darkness? The devil. This whole thing belongs to him. So you focus on this one Caesar and you put your mind, you fix your attention on the world right now and you miss the whole picture, which is the devil is the enemy here. Rome is just a puppet. As we'll see later, the devil will discard Rome as soon as it gets convenient. Rome is just an instrument. Rome is just a tool. The whole picture belongs to Satan. He's the enemy. In other words, if we take out the devil, everything falls into place. If you cut off the head of the snake, you don't have to worry about the body and the rattle and all that, right? So he's, he's zooming out to show you, yeah, you have these individual heads of this terrible beast, but the whole of it is the eighth one. The whole, what's controlling the Roman Empire? What is the, the true emperor of Rome? It's the devil. Not any Caesar who may come and go. So don't fix your attention on Caesars who come and go because they're not forever. That's 11. Verse 12. And, as was described earlier in the text, this beast with seven heads has... Ten horns. Now you don't have ten heads, so it's hard to wrap it around. You don't have even more convenient fourteen head or twenty heads. You can have two horns on every head. It's it's. I don't know where all the horns are. John doesn't describe it that way. He didn't illustrate it. Wouldn't that have been great? But somehow on this creature there are ten horns, and he describes it like this. He says, and the ten horns that you saw on the beast are belonging to ten or represented by ten kings. Now we've already had seven kings, but it's a totally different thing. These are different kings because look what it says. In verse 12, 10 kings which have received no kingdom as of yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. In other words, these, the overall beast is the devil. Right now he's using the emperors of Rome to do his evil bidding. But look, there is this power. Horn represents power. Horn represents strength. Horn represents um, uh, uh, the, the execution of power, the, the you know, putting forth of your muscle. And that's a whole separate thing from what you get in the Roman Empire. There's a separate thing coming. You think you're done with the Roman Empire. If I was to tell you, here's the last emperor of Rome, and now he's dead. There's no more Roman Empire. Hooray! Oh no, here's a new empire. The Byzantine Empire. And even though they legalized Christianity, they're still pretty wicked in their own little ways. You have this whole structure of evil that has been controlled by the devil. It doesn't matter if it's a head, a whole body, a tail, which was a few chapters ago, or a horn. It all belongs to the devil. And now you have ten horns introduced. Ten horns which are represented by ten kings that you haven't even met yet. Ten kings who don't even belong to the Roman Empire, which are probably the Byzantine Empire that will come after. So you have all of these different elements. 
And it's so easy to fixate on one or to fixate on a few of them and you miss the big picture, which is the devil is this creature. He's just zooming in on a feature of it to tell you about it. Because look at verse 13. These ten horns all have one mind. Ten kings of ten kingdoms that haven't even come to power yet. Ten kings all have one mind. How does that work? Because they're all controlled by one evil entity. The devil is the one in power. They have one mind and they give their power and their strength, their submission to the beast, to the whole of it. Look, these are horns on heads, one would assume, on a beast. The horns and the heads give their power to the whole of it. This whole is the devil. And the rest are just appendages and, and uh, manifestations of his wickedness. And the whole of it, verse 14, verse Look what it says. These shall make war. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read what it says. I'm going to tell you what it says. They're going to make war with Jesus. Okay? That's not what it says, though. But that's what it means. It's, saying, it's telling you, here's this great, terrible beast. Who's going to fight this beast? Who wants to raise their hand and fight this polycephaly thing here? Who wants to raise their hand and fight this terrible beast? I don't want to do it. Okay, let's get God to do it. God's going to do it. And what form is God going to take? Is he going to come in the form of a ferocious fighter, 20 feet tall with a sword as big as the Empire State Building? Is that what he's going to look like? No. He's going to make war, this beast is, with the, what does it say? The lamb. The most delicate, fragile, tender, gentle, meek, lowly way that Jesus represents himself in Scripture. Not the lion. If we're going to do animals, Jesus, you are also called the Lion of Judah. By all means, go be the Lion. No, I'm going to be the Lamb. Because how is God going to defeat the devil? How is Jesus going to undo the power of the devil? Here's this ferocious beast. What do ferocious beasts do? They kill. I don't want to die, but probably this beast is going to get me one way or another. So I'm going to die. What then? Well, then I, as a Christian... Then I, as a blood-washed person, then I claim victory. The way that we defeat this beast is not in the classic Sleeping Beauty Prince, what was his name? It doesn't matter. I almost said Charles. It wasn't Charles. The prince, he draws his sword and he fights with the, the it's, a, it's an awesome ending of the Sleeping Beauty. Remember, he's got the big dragon, you know, Maleficent. Yeah, that's not what it's going to look like. The way that you defeat this beast is with the blood of the lamb. That's why he's a lamb, a sacrifice, and not a lion, a fighter. Because the way that you defeat the devil is by going ahead and dying. It's going to get you one way or the other. If you die of old age, if you die from a bus crash, or if you die because some crazy person pulls a gun on you, you're going to die. And then what? Then you're blood washed, and then you claim victory. Right? Someone's going to do something to you. Something's going to be in the world that's going to cause you to die. That's the effect of sin and death, the devil's weapons. So let's nullify the devil's weapons, the blood of Jesus, the lamb. He's going to make war with the lamb, and the lamb is going to, the King James says, overcome, rise victorious. Plant the flag on, put the boot on the foot of, or boot on the neck of the devil. Why? Because he is Lord over all these lords. He is king over all these kings. Oh, I'm so scared of this king. You have a king who's greater than that king. Oh, I'm so scared of this sovereign. You have a sovereign greater than that sovereign. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And they that are with him are given three beautiful descriptions. They are called. They are faithful. They are chosen. 
If you belong to the blood-saving Lamb, you are called, invited by the Gospel. You are chosen, saved by the blood. And you are faithful, protected by the light. And if you're of those three qualifications, that beast can't hurt you. Now, he can maim you, he can wound you, he can make you bleed, but that's just your physical body. He cannot really hurt you. You are blood-washed, called chosen, and faithful. Many are called, few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Who's been called? Everybody's been called. The whole world, John three sixteen. Who's been chosen? The obedient. Only some out of everybody. Mark 16, 15, and 16. Who has remained faithful? Those willing to die for Jesus. Only a few of the some out of everybody. Matthew 7, 14. So, you've got everybody called. Some chosen. Some faithful. I didn't make the thing smaller and smaller. I didn't shrink the boundary. It's not my fault that there are fewer people here than there are here and there are here. My master is the one who said, everybody gets called. Few are going to be chosen. Why? Because few are going to obey the call. Few are going to answer the call. And even among those that do answer the call, not all of them are going to be faithful unto death, the theme of this book. When it gets hard and hard and hard and difficult and difficult and some give up and they give up, these are the people who were here and they give up and so they fall away. But they were here. And they're not anymore. They were called. They were chosen. But they stopped being faithful. Now I say that to people and they say, well, you're being exclusive. You're limiting Christianity. You're making an exclusive club for only a few people. No. Jesus died for all. Now what are you going to do about it? Are you going to obey? And are you going to be faithful? Because if you're going to obey, great. Are you going to be Faithful unto death? Because if not, it's your fault, not mine. Not Jesus's. He's, he's created the place for you to exist where you can be blood-washed and protected, but you have to stay there. Noah has built the ark. Get in and hold on. Right? Because it will get rocky, and it will get scary, and there's two of every animal, and some of them are lions, and some of them are snakes, and some of them are bees, and so it's a little weird and scary, and you might want to leave, but don't leave, you'll drown. You have to hear the call of Noah, get in the boat of Noah, and stay in the boat of Noah. You have to hear the call of Christ, you have to get in the boat of Christ, and stay in the boat of Christ. He calls it his church, but it's the same thing. All right? You do that and you overcome. That's the message. Verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. I said this the last time we had class. The, the reference to water and seas, waters, oceans, bodies of water as, as used in apocalyptic literature, certainly here, this is kind of your Rosetta Stone that unlocks that meaning for us. It, it is a representation of nations, of the kingdoms of the world, the body of people, ex-Christ. So he says to me, God speaking to John through the angel and so forth, the waters which you see where the, where the harlot is sitting, on the beast, etc., that's everybody who exists that's not part of the previously identified few called chosen 
saved, obedient, etc. Not part of my people. It's everybody else. All the other peoples and all the other multitudes and all the other nations and all the other tongues. So all those people exist in the place where this beast roams free, roams wild, and devours as he pleases. So if you don't have Christ, the devil has you. Everyone who is not in the group described in the verse previous belongs to the devil. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how swell a guy you are. You may mow your neighbor's yard. You may be a, just a nice fellow. But if you don't have Christ, the devil has you. And here's the thing about the devil having you. He does not call people. He tempts people. He does not choose people. He deceives people. He does not protect people. He condemns people. He is not your friend. He's your enemy. And when he's in your possession, no, you're in his possession. And if he's going to be condemned at the end of this book, spoiler alert, he's going to be, and you're in his pocket, you go with him. Verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, which remember represent those kings to come, which you saw upon the beast, these shall hate, these shall despise, these shall think less of, disregard, the word literally means, they shall hate the harlot, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Who are we talking about? Who is getting this terrible punishment? Who is, who is being devoured and burned alive and stripped naked, left bare, unprotected, undefended? It is, it is these seven heads. It is the emperors of Christianity's misery. This seemingly never-ending regurgitation of emperor after emperor. This litany of misery. And now, how the turntables, whatever, ten horns that you saw upon the beast are going to turn against the heads. They still belong to the beast because the beast is not one of the heads. The beast is the beast itself. It is the ruler of all, the devil, whom the devil was, was using these seven heads is not going to use them anymore. He's going to abuse them. The devil does not care about Rome. The devil does not care about Rome's power. The devil's not flying the Roman flag in his cavern in hell. He's not pledging allegiance to Rome. The devil is using them. So he doesn't care on the other side about the dynasty of, of, of Augustus or Nerva or Galva in between. He's going, to, he's going to use as much as he can, squeeze every ounce of energy out of it, and then move on to the next toy that he can use to hurt Christ. Incidentally, now we're, we're getting way off track here because it's out of Revelation, which is history. Right now he's using the Roman Empire to hurt the church. How is he hurting the church? He's hurting the church with physical persecution by bludgeoning them, persecuting them, and forcing them to choose between life and Christ. Do I want to live or do I want to go to heaven? And a lot of people are choosing life and they're going to go to hell because of it. That's how he's hurting them under Rome. Well, what's going to fall next? Next after Rome is the Byzantine Empire. It's Constantine and all that. Under Constantine and all of that, Christianity is legalized. You can walk freely with a little cross necklace waving around your, your neck. You, you can pray in public to Jesus himself. And you don't have to worry about the state coming down against you. You're all, that's swell, that's great. And in that period of complacency, of relaxation, of not having to worry about anything, nobody started worrying about anything. And the church grew complacent, grew fat. It didn't expand as it does in periods of persecution. It grew largesse. It grew fat. It grew just pathetic. 
and fell into spiritual decay. It fell into false doctrine and brought about the period of Christian dark ages where the church was chained to pulpits and you couldn't read it because you were poor and common and didn't speak the Latin language that the priest was reading. And so you didn't know if he was telling you the truth or not, and he wasn't. That was how he hurt the church then. It's not sunshine and rainbows, it just feels like it. And you don't even realize that he's bludgeoning you now with a pillow of complacency. That's coming after this. Right now it's the Roman Empire. So the devil's used Rome, he's used the, the stick, but next come the ten horns that will destroy Rome and bring about the carrot. Anyway, verse 17. God put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Hold on, I thought Satan was in charge of all this. You just spent ten minutes telling me it was about Satan. Yeah, but if you've ever read Daniel, which I'm studying myself right now this year, I'll teach it to you later. If you've ever read Daniel, you know the message of that book is God rules in the kingdoms of men. And he establishes, rises, and falls whatever kingdoms he wants. So here are all these emperors, all these dynasties, all these Roman uh, power figures, and they're all going to be destroyed. The devil is the beast. The devil's pulling those strings, but who has the leash of the devil? Who decides when Rome falls? God does, right? God uses what the devil's doing for his goodwill. To test, to purify, to strengthen his church, fine. But the ultimate source of this is God. And so rightly is he credited, verse 17. He puts in the hearts of the ten horns to turn against Rome, to fulfill his will and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast. Now it is time for this force of evil to rise, until the words of God should be fulfilled, which we'll learn about later. Just put a pin in that. Verse 18. And the woman which you saw is that great city, Rome, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Reigns, present tense, but not, as we've already seen in prophecy, not forever, soon to fall. Keep going. There's no chapter break. Verse 1, chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth, whole scene where he's standing, just explodes with light, lighted with his glory. I don't know who this angel is. Pretty majestic. Maybe it's an archangel. Maybe it's just a messenger, but it's got a big entrance. This angel comes, and this is like the 30th, I'm not even exaggerating, I think I counted the other week, it's like the 30th angel individual that we've seen in this book. So God is just using them left and right to deliver his message. Let's break up Revelation chapter 18 as we dive into it for the next few minutes. We're going to break up this chapter into three parts. There is a sudden sayonara for the Roman Empire, the first eight verses. Then there is the sorrow of sinners, verses 9 through 20. And then the sound of salvation, verses 21 through 24. So what you're going to read in this chapter is kind of the aftermath of what you read about in the previous chapter, which was Roman Empire is big and bad and scary, and look at these horns. Oh no, they're turning against the beast. Oh, don't kill me. I thought we were on the same team. And then Rome is destroyed. And then what's left of Rome are the ashes. What's left of Rome is this corpse. And all the people wail and weep and lament the death of the Roman Empire. Who wails and weeps and laments? The wicked people who use the Roman Empire for the wicked purposes. All right? So, the beast has been destroyed. Remember, it's been devoured. It's been burned to a crisp. All that's left are ashes. And this angel comes down to deliver the message, to write the eulogy for the Roman Empire. And what is this message? Verse 2, the angel cries with a mighty, strong voice and says, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and hold of every foul spirit. Hold, a, a hold place, a, a location for. Every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Woe to this city. Oh, how this city is fallen, is fallen. Very similar to the kind of things you'd read in Jeremiah or in other Old Testament books like Isaiah. 
whenever it's describing the fall of a great city-state, the fall of a mighty empire, the fall of a kingdom or a dynasty, it is fallen, it is fallen. It repeats it twice, or repeats it once to make it twice. To, to emphasize how great a fall it was. And now here, Rome, called here Babylon, because we don't dare use the word when they're screening the letters, but Rome is Babylon in the text. Babylon, the great city of evil, the great empire of wickedness, is fallen, is fallen. And it has become, look at what it was. Look how majestic and mighty and powerful and renowned it was. But now it's a home. It's a haven. It's a den of just evil, unclean spirits of wickedness and scavengers, buzzards that come picking at the corpse. Revelation 18, verse 3. For all the nations, the angel's still talking, still writing the eulogy. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her, Rome's, fornication. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. So everybody has taken advantage. All the wicked people of the world have taken advantage of the power of the, of the Roman Empire. Like John's taken advantage of a prostitute is what he's saying here. They've all drunk the wine of her wrath and the, and the wine of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her uh, delicacies, King James says. Don't lose kind of this, this subtext to this verse. Because while everyone is going to be looking at Rome, and as we're going to see throughout this chapter, all the people he's talking about here who took advantage of Rome in a positive way for them, they were happy to use Rome, they're all going to be standing away, thinking, if I get far enough away, maybe God won't strike me down. What is implicit in this verse is, and you're next. Because it says, they didn't just drink of her fornication, they drank the wine of her wrath. The wine of her wrath is a term used earlier in this book to describe how Rome's sins were building and building and building and the cup is being filled and filled and filled and it's about to overflow. And when God's cup of wrath overflows, it's toast for you. And that's what's happened. And all these people who are going to be lamenting, God's got all their numbers and he's coming for them next because they drank the wine of her wrath. They committed fornication with her. They're both guilty. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her riches. The people who sell the goods. Rome makes the goods. They sell the goods. The shippers ship the goods. Everybody's going to be crying in this text. You'll see. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of Rome, my people. That you be not partakers of her sins. That you receive not her plagues. I'm going to destroy Rome. Now, the, 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 the timeline, it's, it's, all, it's all screwy here. Because from John's perspective, he's seeing the vision. He is seeing Rome fall. He's seeing Rome be destroyed, burned into ashes. And he's seeing the angel write his eulogy. But then he's hearing another voice coming from a different plane of time. Speaking to the Christians reading this in the present tense. Not the future of the vision when Rome will be destroyed, but the Christians reading it now as they live under Rome. And they hear this voice from heaven saying, Hey, you people reading the letter. This is a cautionary tale. This is what's going to happen to the people who partake of Rome's sins. Is that going to be you? No. Then come out of her, spiritually speaking. Stop reveling in her sins. Stop going along with her debauchery. Leave her. It's, it's almost a quote from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 20 through 26, where Moses, speaking on behalf of God, come out from the people and be separate. Isaiah says something similar. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Come out from the people. Come out from the evil. Be separate. 
Christians in Rome being tempted to engage in the casual sins that Rome offers you. Come out, lest their fate be yours. When in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. Verse 5. For her sins have gone up and up and up. Her sins have climbed higher and higher and higher. Her sins have reached the top of heaven. And God has remembered every single one of her sins. Going all the way back to the beginning. God remembers everyone. So somewhere in that big long tower of sins it's climbed all the way to heaven. Somewhere in that proverbial tower of Babel. Somewhere in there is your name. If you've been in Rome and you've done as the Romans have done. And recorded is your sin. And the way that you partook with Rome. Like the John with the prostitute. He sees it. He's known it. Vengeance comes for you. Lest you pull your name out and repent. Verse 6, reward her, this is someone speaking to God, presumably an angel, reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double, according to her works, and the cup which she has filled to her, double. In other words, God so smite Rome, so that for every one sin she committed, you punish her twice. Make it double the punishment, double the pain, double the heartache, double the suffering. Because they killed me, and I'm under the altar, and I'm crying for vengeance, and I'm saying, God, give them twice. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's not fair. First of all, they're the enemy. Second of all, if you plant an apple seed, who expects to get one apple if you plant an apple seed? Now, if you plant an apple seed, you expect to get more than one apple. If you plant a watermelon seed, you're not going to get a watermelon, right? If you plant, I don't know, what are things? Uh, no, you don't plant, there are no potato seeds. Squash? Fine, my wife says squash. You plant squash, do you get a squash? Nobody does that. You plant squash, you get squash and squash and squash. Rome has planted the seeds of her punishment. She's not going to get a one-to-one -one ratio. You reap what you sow. She sowed a lot of evil seeds. And so she's going to reap a lot of punishment. So it's not only fair, it's just, and it's just the natural order of things to punish your double. Verse 7. Not, not to mention the fact that Rome's sins were not just exclusive to Rome. She wasn't just self-hurting. Her sins caused an influence, a reverberation, which caused others to sin. Influence also comes back to you. Verse 7. How much she has glorified herself. Oh, look at how Rome has, over the years, puffed herself up to think she was so swell. And lived, the King James says, deliciously, high on the hog. Not a worry in the world. So much torment and sorrow give her. While she's been stomping on us, she's been smirking and strutting around like she owns the place. Not only should you smack her down, you should smack her down twice. Give her so much torment and sorrow. Because she has said in her heart, listen to Rome's quote, we've been writing Rome's eulogy, well, let's let Rome write it herself. How would Rome like to be remembered? Right? What's going to be on your tombstone? Here lies Rome. He was awesome. Well, that's basically what they say. Here lies Rome. I sit a queen. I am no widow. I see no sorrow. That's how Rome thought of herself. When Rome looked in the mirror, she saw a queen, a beautiful ruler. When Rome looked in the, in the mirror, she saw no widow. In other words, she was untouched and unshaken by death. You've got to have death to be a widow. Someone close to you has to die. 
No one close to me has ever died. I'm indestructible. Who knew no sorrow? I've never lost a fight. That's how Rome sees herself. Well, no, not quite. Look at verse 8. Here's how God sees them. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Not literally. We don't do numbers literally in Revelation. It's going to come suddenly. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who has judged her. Sudden punishment comes in one day. Plagues will devour her, God promises. Plagues are often used in a metaphorical way in apocalyptic writing, just to describe judgment and divine punishment. It's a callback to God using literal plagues against Egypt. And he'll still whip them out every now and then, but it's used in the metaphorical way here. Look at each of the thoughts described here as God describes what's going to come to Rome and pair them up with what Rome describes about herself in the previous verse. Rome thought she was invincible. God says, I'll bring her death. Rome thought she was untouchable. God says, I'll bring her mourning. Rome thought she was beautiful. God says, I'll bring her famine. Rome thought she was unconquerable. God says, I'm going to burn it down. Nations rise and fall. Nations conquer nations. Empires crumble and collapse and are rebuilt. They sweep the globe and they disappear. But listen, when God says you're done, close the book. When God says you're done, you're done. Rome is going to be utterly destroyed. Rome at this time was far from it. Rome was the top banana. But what are they now? They're not even ashes. They're not even dust. Rome is gone, right? Mussolini took power in Italy. He said he wanted to start the second Roman Empire. Then he died. It's just Italy. There will be no rebuilding her former greatness. She's just a history book. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her, shall lament for her. And when they, they will do this when they see the smoke of her burning. I'm going to destroy this empire. And then God says, I'm going to look at the world when I do it. And I'm going to watch and see who's sad because that's my enemy. Who's crying over Rome? Who's sad Rome is gone? Who's standing in the corner saying, oh no, there goes my bank account because I was living high off the hog in Rome. My money's no good in, in, in India. My money's no good in England, but my money was good in Rome because that's where you did all the sinful business. Oh no, Rome is gone. Okay, that's my enemy, God says. You're next. They're going to bewail. They're going to cry loudly. It's a pathetic sight to see it. Just <laughs> like that over Rome. They're going to lament, literally beat the chest. Oh, dramatic. Oh, drama queen. Oh, Rome, 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 how I love thee. Please. Verse 10. They're going to be doing this, mind you, standing afar off. Nobody wants to get too close because that's where the thunder and lightning and the fireballs from heaven were. So we'll, we'll lament. Oh, Rome, Rome. You know, it's going to be a little bit, please don't get me next. They're going to be standing afar off and lament. For fear of her torment, they're going to do that. And they're going to be saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, in what hour is judgment come? Oh, I can't believe it. She was just here. I just went to the post office. It was running. Well, not smoothly. It's a post office. But it was running. 
And now it's gone. It's all gone. It's just, it's, where, how? Where did it all go? Gone. That great, horrible city. Well, when God says you're done, you're done. Verse 11. And that's the kings, okay? That's the people who got the most out of it. Imagine if you're a politician, okay? Imagine if you're a crook, but I repeat myself. Imagine if you're a politician and suddenly all of the people who bribe you, I mean, who give campaign contributions to you, they're gone overnight. The wailing that would happen. How am I supposed to know how to pass bills? With morality? Please. I need to know who's lining my pockets to know what bills to pass. I need to know who's funding this campaign or that campaign. Once Roma's gone, the senators are going to be standing back behind the sign thing. You think I'm next? I think I might be next. Well, whoa, whoa, what was me? Verse 11. And not just the leaders, the merchants, the people who took advantage of what the leaders concocted and, and put into place with their power structure and the wares and the goods and things were sold by these people, the merchants. They're going to weep and mourn over her because no man buys merchandise anymore. The, the empire is gone. So all of my stores are gone. All my customers are gone. My bank account is gone. What am I going to do now? Verse 12. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of precious wood and all the brass and all the iron and all the marble. It's all gone. What am I supposed to do? What am I going to do with all this marble? No one's here to buy it. I had a whole warehouse of bronze. It's gone now. 13. And the cinnamon and the odors and the ornaments and the frankincense and the wine and the oil oh, and the flour and the wheat. How will the people buy my bread? And the beasts and the sheep and the horses and the chariots and the slaves, the souls of men. Oh, I certainly don't feel bad for these people anymore. Because they're not just hawking bread. They're selling people. So the, the animal owners and the slave owners and the bread sellers and the chariot sellers and the perfumed incense sellers, they're all in the same boat. They're all lamenting because their sugar daddy's gone. 14. And the fruits... Now, this is God speaking. I've been saying it as though it's the people. This is God... God's running down the list, which makes it even more delicious. That they're crying and wailing, and God's like, yeah, you know what you're crying about? Because I took away your cinnamon, I took away your odors, I took away your spices. So now he's still talking, God is. And I took away your fruits, that your soul lusted after. It's all departed from you. And all the things which were, the King James says, dainty and goodly. All the things that you just, you know, your creature comforts. The real things. You know, you got to have bread and milk, especially when it snows 35 inches in, in a week. you got to have your bread and milk, you got to make your ice cream. But these are your actual things that you really need. These are your real, I mean, not the things you don't need. These are your real creature comforts. You know, these are, these are your feather pillows. These are your, your shiny, fluffy slippers. These are the best things, your dainty, goodly things. They're all departed from you. You'll find them no more. You can dig in the rubble, it's just ashes. You're not going to find it. It's all departed from you. Gone in a blink. 15. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by Rome, are going to stand way back there, for fear of the torment, wailing and weeping, next to the senators, next to the congressmen, next to the presidents, next to the governors, next to the politicians, next to the people who took advantage, who struck the deals, who didn't care about the people, who just cared about lining their own pockets, they're hiding back there. 
The merchants who sold the goods, including the people, they're all crying too. And they're all saying, verse 16, alas, alas, literally, oi, oi. So it's just, it's just the expression of, I have no words. Oh, oi, that great city, clothed in fine linen and purple, scarlet and decked with gold, precious stones and pearls. They're just crying. The Walmart's burned down. And all the who's down in Whoville will cry, boo-hoo. And no one cares about Roman souls that will be condemned forever. No one has even put a thought to the spiritual ramifications. You notice that? It's all about the goods. It's all about the services. It's all about the comforts. Meanwhile, God's motivation was not, you have too much stuff, you must die. God's motivation was, you're wicked. And you killed my people, you must die. It's a spiritual problem that led to the punishment. But no one seems to care about the spiritual problem, which is why problems tend to repeat themselves. Verse 17. For in one hour, so great, this is the people wailing, in one hour, so great riches come to naught. And, so you got the kings who make the goods, let's say. You got the merchants who sell the goods, and you got the shipmaster who delivers the goods. And all the company of ships and sailors, as many as trade by the sea, they're also standing afar off. Well, they're all clustered together. I mean, if God wanted one thunderbolt, just poof, right? But no, they're all clustered back there, looking off, watching it burn, and they're all saying the same thing. Look at verse 18. They cry when they see the smoke of her burning, and they say, what city is like unto this great city? It's like when a celebrity dies, or some famous author dies, or someone who none of us have ever met, who contributed nothing really that was any spiritual to society, okay? Not to speak ill of the dead in general, not to make light of a soul that is condemned, but the attitude of, oh, this person was so good because they wrote a book. This person was so good because they scored a lot of points in basketball or in football or what have you. This person was so good because they wrote that one song I really liked. Oh, the world will never be the same because of that person's death. Oh, what a terrible tragedy it is. And their only basis for defining this as terrible is just that they don't get to enjoy that song as much anymore. They don't get to enjoy that book anymore. It's purely about the world. It has nothing to do with the soul. And that's these people lamenting that this city that made them rich is gone. Who cares about all the bodies? The store's gone now. We can always ship in more bodies. But now the store's burned down. What city was like this great city? None was like her, they say foolishly. Lots of cities have been like Rome. Babylon, the real one. That's why she's called Babylon in this text, because that's the closest approximation. Babylon was like Rome, and Babylon fell. What happened to Sodom, a, 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 a booming city in its day? Sodom, destroyed. What happened to the world, which was bustling and hustling and growing and expanding in Noah's day? Gone. Israel, under Solomon, was a power in the region, making alliances from a position of strength with Egypt and other places. Split in two, taken into captivity. God's been bringing nations down for a long time. Don't be shocked when it happens to Rome. And no, no offense, America, don't be shocked when it happens to you. We've existed not even a fraction of as long as Rome. Verse 19. 
And they kept, that might not be true. I don't remember my history. It doesn't matter. Verse 19. And they cast dust on their heads. That's cultural. It's a way of saying, I'm so mourning, y'all, I'm just not even going to bathe today. I'm just so upset, I don't even care how I look. They're just throwing dust on themselves. And they're crying, they're weeping, they're wailing, and they're saying, alas, alas, oi, oi, that great city wherein were made rich all the head ships in the sea. Oh, that's what you care about. That's right, I forgot you were the, shipper, the shipping people. All the ships in the sea were made rich by reason of her costliness. For in one hour, all my money is gone. Sinful Rome has been destroyed. And if Rome is, as it is, disgusting as it is, it is depicted as a living thing, right? A creature. This creature has been killed. Have you ever seen a deer on the side of the road? Of course you have. You live in the south. Still alive but dying because it got hit and hasn't died yet. Or you see a dog that's got hit by a car and you just see it breathing just a little bit meagerly and pathetically. Oh, it just breaks your heart. You see a living thing dying, okay? Here, here, is, here is an empire of people. Here's an empire of souls. And they've all been killed. And Rome, because she did so much evil, because she was so wicked, because she cared nothing about God, when she's finally brought down, nobody is crying for Rome they're all crying about themselves. I lost my money. I lost my way in. I lost my influence. I lost my golden ticket. Rome, these people are dead. And nobody cares. When you make a deal with Satan, you're always going to end up alone. Nobody's singing at your funeral. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and your holy apostles and prophets. For God has avenged you on her. Stand. They're all, all the people who got fat off of Rome, they're all standing way back there because they're afraid of God. Well, we're not afraid of God because we're on his side. So march yourselves right into the middle of the ashes. Stand on the corpse of Rome and thank God that she's dead. What does it say? Rejoice over her. Throughout this book, God has been calling you eventual conquerors future champions, soon-to-be rulers. That's what this has been building to. It's not literal. It's not, it's not um, you know, actual. Christians aren't actually going to go to the place where Rome's you know, ruin is and plant a flag there and act all prideful because that's not Christian. No, it's metaphorical. It's symbolic of victory. So in the context of a symbolic victory, go put your symbolic boot on their symbolic neck and be thankful that you won because God lets you win. Rejoice over her all of heaven, and all you apostles, and all you prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Heaven is, everyone is crying. Everyone is wailing and lamenting. Heaven is rejoicing. 21. We're almost done. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down. It's like the guy, it's like the redneck, and they're all out on the lake, and he says, watch what I can do, and he just does a thing. He just picks up a rock, and he throws it, and we're so impressed by it because we're idiots, and this angel says, the angel's not an idiot, rednecks are. The angel picks up this big rock, I mean humongous, and he says, now watch this, y'all, and he throws it, and it splashes in the sea, and he says, and that was Rome. Look what I just did. That's Rome, y'all. A mighty angel took up a stone, a great millstone, and cast it in the sea, and saying, thus, like that, with violence, is that great city Babylon thrown down, 
What happens when you throw a rock into the ocean? Boop, gone. So will Rome just be gone. Well, they're telling me I have to stop. I have to stop. We have three verses left. We'll finish it next week and go into chapter 19. That's all I have for you guys. Thank you all very much.